Welcome to An Examined Education, a podcast from the Cambridge School, a classical Christian school in San Diego, California, where we examine an education that prepares students to think well, love rightly, and live wisely. On today's episode, I'm learning all I can about how the Cambridge School teaches computer science classically. It was fascinating to speak with Dr. Ruben Sedergren, who is teaching our inaugural computer science class this year, and how he draws on classical concepts of language, beauty, and ethics. I can't say I knew all the things that Ruben was talking about, but I left wanting to take his class, which I think is a great sign of things to come. Get ready for an enlightening conversation here on An Examined Education. All right, well, Ruben, thank you so much for being with us today. And uh, let's just get right into it. How are you, or how did you find Cambridge? How are you connected here? Well, I am, I'm very proud, probably overly proud to be one of the <laughs> oldest members of the community. I mean, not how old I am, but right. how long we've been here. Um, back when Lucas was in third grade, we had been, Lucas, Tina had homeschooled him up to second grade okay. and was crushing it. And, you know, I, our pastor's wife told us about Cambridge School. So we came to an open house and I was thinking, we're doing great. Tina's awesome. Yeah. And, you know, I've got math and science covered. She's got, you know, experience with Latin and she's studying all these resources. We don't need this from Cambridge School. And we <laughs> went through the open house, heard everything that uh, Jean had to say, just kind of soaked in her vision and just came away stunned. Like, we can't do that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so awesome. we enrolled Lucas for that fall into third grade. Uh, that was, you know, he's in, he was in the first graduating class, so that was, okay. the, I believe, the third year of the school. Yep. And Callum that year in K four. Wow. And been here ever since. That's great. Um, so, what role now do you take this year? Yeah. So, or how'd you get connected into being uh, a teacher? Uh, this year, I've taken up a extra part time gig of <laughs> teaching one computer science elective. And uh, the school's been very helpful in, in organizing the schedule so I can do it just two mornings in the week, first thing, and then get to work. Um, yeah, I guess it started three or four years back. I think uh, Gene and, and Melissa had been getting demand from the parents for technology curriculum, programming, mm -hmm. computing. And I guess because they knew that I was a software guy, they kind of bounced some questions off me and the, the discussion just kind of grew. Uh, and eventually I, I found myself kind of evaluating curriculum and coming up with a proposal and uh, showing it to Gene and Melissa. And, and I knew I, going into that when I was pitching the, the proposal, I wasn't totally sure that what I had uh, put together was really going to be right. I wanted to see mm -hmm. what Gene and Melissa thought. And Gene's takeaway at the end was, yeah, this is what I was looking for. This is what somebody that's liberally educated should know about computers. Okay, so we are fairly low tech, right? We don't yes. have any one-for-one -one program of computers with kids and and uh, all of that. So how do you teach a computer science course classically? Or how does it fit into the Cambridge School? Yeah, so it's... The, the Cambridge School is very computer averse, and I think that's good, <laughs> um, which might be strange to hear from a computer science teacher. But yeah, uh, talk about that a little bit. Why, why do you think that's good? I mean, math teachers will all tell you you can't give them calculators too soon. Yeah. Right. You know, they just punch the numbers in and they don't get the practical hands on fluency. You mm. know, you'll never learn your multiplication tables if you got a calculator to do it for you. 
And that extends to higher level things as well. Um, there's a there's a certain sense in which you have to go through the boredom and the practice and the discipline of doing something by hand the long way so that you really understand what it is that you're doing. Mm -hmm. And then you can see, oh, this is so mechanical. A computer could do this for me. And I would understand what it was doing. And I'd be able to, you know, spot check, sanity check the results, mm -hmm. know that it's, you know, not some typo error or some stupid thing went wrong, which which always does if you're <laughs> not experienced with, or even if you are experienced with computers. <laughs> and um, I don't know. So I've, I've taught in various contexts, uh, you know, on the way to a PhD, you've got to be a TA. And right. I was a professor for a, at the College of Worcester for two years. Um, no, not, no Cambridge students have gone there yet, but I think a few have applied. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I've had my share of experiences trying to teach with software. And invariably, I had found that I spend all my time teaching the software and mm -hmm. I it's really gets in the way of teaching the content. Interesting. So I am all on board with uh, keeping computer use uh, minimal and as late as possible and intentional. Mm -hmm. um, so what kind of things did you think about as you were planning the computer science course for a classical Christian school? Okay, so this course is, uh, it's a jumping off from an AP course that exists. So there's two okay. AP courses for computer science. One is just called AP Computer Science A, and that's purely technical. You only learn how to program in Java, and that is absolutely not what would fit with Cambridge. It doesn't yeah. connect to anything. Um, the other uh, computer science course that AP offers is called Computer Science Principles, and it's much more broad ranging. Um, it only gets into programming a little bit, but it talks about issues of uh, privacy and social media and ethics. Mm. And it's a lot of the kinds of directions that Cambridge would want to go anyways. And mm -hmm. so um, we, we were almost going to do that course, but uh, it was decided in the end, I think, that the, our seniors don't need one more AP. Right. And so um, we turned it into just a honors level instead, got that approved with the UC accreditation mm -hmm. board or whatever it's called. And uh, we get to, we have some freedom to move in some of our own directions that way as well. So, but anyways, uh, we've got the same kinds of things. Um, I divided the way I think of the course into four parts. There's the programming part and there's um, data visualization. So learning how to uh, display quantitative data, numbers, graphs okay. and charts with excellence and integrity. So excellence in terms of craft, visual appearance, clarity, and integrity in terms of uh, not lying with your data mm -hmm. and to be able to read that in others and to be able to know how to express your data honestly yourself. So th those two form the practical side. And then there's also a theoretical um, side, uh, which divides into two halves. So there's computer science. Computer science is different than computer programming or software engineering, uh, kind of in the same way that maybe architecture is different than having a contractor's license. Mm -hmm. um, so computer science is actually very mathy. And so students, have, <laughs> I don't know if they think they've been going through the ringer with math <laughs> or not, but um, we've been learning a lot of stuff about um, algorithms, uh, how long they take, how that runtime grows with the input size and what it means when you've got a uh, naive algorithm that just blows up in its runtime when you add larger inputs versus 
uh, a more uh, clever algorithm that's able to scale well. Oh, and the fourth part, uh, so that's the third part. And the fourth mm -hmm. part is anything to do with society or ethics or privacy, okay. um, anything like that. What kind of resources are you drawing from as you put this class together? So many resources, a lot yeah. of resources. Uh, and frankly, I think God has been providentially helping me in this department because what's supposed to be the textbook for the course is the uh, second edition of a book called Blown to Bits. Okay. <laughs> and uh, it was due to be published as of January, and it's still, the Amazon page says, not yet released. So I'm working without a textbook, but I've got a lot of other books. As you can see, I brought props to this purely audio medium. Um, <laughs> the stack is really And, and a lot tall. of these uh, I just got hooked up with by accident. Okay. Um, not this one. This is this this first one is The Art of Computer Programming, Volume 1 by Donald Knuth. Donald Knuth is probably the most preeminent living computer scientist. He's a professor at Stanford. Okay. He's super old. It's his life mission <laughs> to finish this series of volumes. He's been working on it for 30 or 40 years. Wow. Um, at a certain point when his first volume went into its second edition, he was so dissatisfied with the quality of the preprints because they had switched from um, old school manual typesetting craft to the first generation of computerized typesetting. And it looked like junk. Yeah. And he hated it so much <laughs> that he invented the first computer typesetting system. It's called Tech. And in order to do that, he invented, uh, he wrote software called Metafont for capturing fonts okay. in software instead of on, you know, lead type. Right. Um, and all of this work on the art of computer programming was put on hold while he did that. And because he got into the world of Metafont, um, he got hooked up with um, the world of calligraphy and typesetting and, and type designers, including including Herman Zapf, who's a friend of his. You've probably seen Zapf dingbats in your yeah. list of fonts. He's a calligrapher and a type designer. And so, um, oh, another thing, Donald Knuth is a Christian. He's a Lutheran. Okay. And he had taught at his church this Sunday school class on 316s, where he went through the 316 of every book in the Bible, just to look at it as a random sample of the Bible, uh, just so that Interesting. instead of picking and choosing what verses you think are going to be the good verses, <laughs> pick a rule and let the rule um, point you at verses in the Bible um, and see what you come up with. And it's it was pretty amazing. And so he put it together as a book. And not only did he do his own translations of Hebrew and Greek, just using resources that are out there, wow. but every one of those verses... Uh, he got his friend Herman Zapf to contact calligraphers all over the world and to illustrate every one of those verses. So if you can, uh, I've got the book right here. Okay. You can just flip open anywhere in there and. Oh, this is, this is incredible awesome. Illustrations. Donald Newth, 316 Bible text illuminated. Oh, it's beautiful. What, what a cool concept. So go to uh, first Timothy. Cause that's right. one that I know is uh, there's a scan of the of the picture uh, that can be downloaded online you could link to. So for our listening audience, uh, just so you know what we're talking about, we looked up um, 1 Timothy 3.16, and it's written out in a creative way that, that really defines um, what it's trying to say. It's almost kind of like it's created a collage out of torn pieces of paper. Right, yeah. Um, 
it's um, if you look up First Timothy three sixteen, it's a, it's a hymn. Paul is citing a hymn that's commonly known to churches of the time, and uh, the poem in there it has this uh, this amazing structure that mm-hmm. um, you can group all of the clauses in multiple different ways, and each way a different meaning springs out of the poem based on whether it's chronological about Christ's birth and death and resurrection, or whether it's about um, his personhood and godhood, or you know, different clusterings kind of give different different meanings. But um, there's a great story that I'll be able to share with the students about how hard it was to get that particular work out of Russia because it was this was in the 80s and it was okay closed back then. That was a Russian um, calligrapher, and so it was, oh wow. It was That's really hard to get it out, and there was no possibility for back and forth communication about the changes that Nuth had to make to get it print ready and stuff like that. But it's just beautiful. And, yeah, uh, that one can be downloaded online. We'll get that linked up. Okay, that's great. Yeah. So, anyways, all these tie-ins. Donald Nuth, uh, he's got awesome. such an amazing life story and work ethic, and uh, he's not just a purely technical guy. He cares for uh, what is not only true but good and beautiful. Right. As you can see in yeah. his craft, he's also an organist. Um, he's got so much amazing stuff. <laughs> That's going awesome. On. Um, he cares about uh, craft and programming as well. He, he invented this concept called literate programming, which is um, uh, a common fault of programmers is to write source code that is not well documented, not well commented. Okay. And then when anybody else tries to read it, it's totally cryptic. Even if yourself goes back later and tries to read it, yeah, you're not in the in the moment anymore, and you can't read it anymore. And so he invented the notion of literate programming, and um, it it has kind of survived in certain ways today. And I'm going to have the students trying to at least attach their brains to that and get exposed to it. I'm going to just for funsies take a look at some of the <laughs> 16 stuff. Uh, it's got some fun computer uh, related stories in there too, because when he was receiving all of these uh, calligraphy prints from all over the world. Yeah. He had to prepare them for print using, you know, three color or whatever. Right. Book is printed in. Yeah. Um, he was basically the first um, hardcore beta user of Adobe Photoshop. He got to go into the Adobe company after hours and he had a room just full of Macs and he would go to one <laughs> Mac and say, okay, resize. And then that would sit there and crunch for an hour. You sit, go to the next Mac and say, okay, you know, change this color layer. I yeah. don't know what they do. And <laughs> just kept them all tied up because <laughs> everything was so slow back That's then. amazing. Hey, this has been great so far. Uh, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our resident classicist here at the Cambridge School, Jim Hamilton. Welcome to the arena. I'm Jim Hamilton, the chair of classical languages at the Cambridge School. And today we're gonna be talking about computer science through an anecdote of the classical world. One of the things I appreciate about Ruben Sedergren, our uh, computer science teacher so much, uh, is that he's so concerned on what can make a computer science class classical. Uh, One of the things that I've seen him speak about is focusing on the impacts that tools have on their users. And I think an apt metaphor of this comes from Plato's Phaedrus. 
Socrates, uh, who Plato has as the primary interlocutor, discusses many things with the titular character Phaedrus. Uh, and towards the end of their conversation, he denigrates a newfangled technology of their time, the written word. Uh, here's a quote of his primary critique. If men learn this, it will implant forgetfulness in their souls. They will cease to exercise memory because they rely on that which is written. Calling things to remembrance no longer from within themselves, but by means of external marks. What you have discovered is a recipe not for memory, but for reminder. It is no true wisdom that you offer your disciples, but only the semblance of wisdom. For by telling them of many things without teaching them, you will make them seem to know much, while for the most part they know nothing. And as men filled not with wisdom, but with the conceit of wisdom, they will be a burden to their fellows." Though most would agree that Socrates' stance is a little too extreme here, he brings up a good point. Uh, and it's pretty remarkable how applicable this wisdom is to all the new technology. I imagine you could probably make those, you're making those connections yourself as you listen to that quote. We should be concerned for a new technology's impact. In Socrates' case, he did not want writing, an external tool, to replace the internalized knowledge that could be taught through dialogue with a teacher. In the same way, at Cambridge, we're not disparaging of modern technology, but thoughtfully reserved. We take on a computer science class because we've recognized there are many benefits in doing this, but not unconditionally, taking care to take the time to see its limitations and setbacks. This has been The Arena. I'm Jim Hamilton. Until next time. Is any part of your class a uh, history of yes. computer programming? Yep. Yes. Or computer science, I guess. So moving on in the resources. Yes. Um, Alan Turing is kind of the father of computer science. And this particular book, it's called The Annotated Turing, a guided tour through Alan Turing's historic paper on computability. Um, Alan Turing wrote a paper in 1937 where he proved things about what computers uh, cannot possibly do, like in the sense of can God nuke mm. microwave a burrito so hot that even he can't eat it, right? You know, self-contradicting <laughs> kind of thing. Right. Similar kind of problems with computing. And he proved this before computers existed. He was thinking of it in terms of computers, one who computes. He was envisioning okay. rooms full of mindless people sitting there following rules written on paper. Uh, and, you know, how complicated can we make these rules? What can we make a system like that compute? He was kind of anticipating what a mechanical computer, an electronic computer, mm -hmm. would eventually do. And the things that he proved um, are, you know, any computer that we have today is mathematically equivalent to a Turing machine. So he grasped these insights so early. And um, the reason I uh, like this book, I found this at work at a, you know, leave a book, take a book shelf. Okay. Um, <laughs> so this is God directing this to me, I think. But um, this guy is so crazy about this paper. See all these gray insets in here? Yeah. 
he is copying the original paper a few lines at a time with the original page numbers, line breaks, fonts, um, and explaining that from there. So it's really going back to the beginning and diving in. And it really helped wow. me understand that paper. And, and I'll be able to help deliver it to the students. Um, the other super significant thing about Alan Turing is in the 50s or 60s, he came up with the notion of what's now known as the Turing test, which is he came and revisited this original work of what computers can't do. Um, I mean, the reason that he designed a Turing machine the way that he did, and that he explains it in the 37 paper, is because he thought that it was a reasonable model of what computations are possible within a human brain. Hmm. And so he re revisits this in the 50s and asks, uh, what is it going to take for us to decide when computers have intelligence? in a way that we would recognize as right. intelligence. Yeah. And so he postulated this Turing test where if you have a computer and a human behind a wall typing answers to a questioner who is a human, right. if the human can't tell the difference, then computers have achieved intelligence. Yes. And there's it's questionable whether we've gotten there I was yet. gonna ask you, what do you think? Have we gotten there? See, what happens <laughs> is that every time we, that we seem, we get, seems like we get there, um, people explain how they did it and it's so dumb. We say, oh yeah, well that doesn't count. <laughs> like if you look up uh, Eliza, this was in the, written in the 70s, I think. Um, it's a fake psychologist that you just start talking to it and all it does is pipe questions back at you by rephrasing your own words. Hmm. And there are tons of people that get fooled into thinking that they're really talking to a person. And it's the same underlying concept behind bots today that can mm -hmm. fool people between, you know, chatbots for support. The really good ones, they get the job done. And yeah. sometimes, you know, they can fool you into thinking you're actually talking to a person. Um, but so, no, I don't think we're there yet. Um, and so the big, there, you know, it's a big philosophical question as to whether we could ever possibly get there. I've got two books here um, that take opposite sides of that debate. Okay. Um, the Emperor's New Mind by Roger Penrose says no. Uh, Gerlach <laughs> Bach, one of the most amazing books ever written. Uh, this was uh, the present that Stephen Priest got for being uh, math whiz last okay. year for Mr. Moeller. Um, uh, that's awesome. But uh, so those, those are fun. I could go on for hours about those. Uh, other resources. So I work in the software industry to do with satellite imagery, uh, okay. processing and um, tracing pixels to the ground and you know our software is used a lot by uh, intelligence okay and it's also used by civil mapping agencies things like that so i'm kind of hooked into that community um and again just f from being in that community yeah a friend of mine had this book and was telling everybody you got to read this book so what this, <laughs> this is called eyes in the sky um there's technology called whammy wide area motion imagery and it's used um, in Iraq and Afghanistan and stuff where they'll have a helicopter or maybe a drone just flying circles around a city 24 seven. Okay. Looking down and they've got this super, super high resolution video camera that captures the whole city and all the time. And there's operators that can just kind of zoom into any little area they need to see. And one thing they can do with this is wow. because they're recording, they can go not only forwards and but they can also go backwards in the recording. So 
if uh, a bomb blows up a Humvee, mm -hmm. you see the explosion in that recording, you rewind until you see the person planting the bomb, mm -hmm. and you rewind to see where their vehicle came from, and you find out where they live. Um, and you wow. can go investigate. And yeah. so the thing is, though, this technology is coming to America. Yikes. And that's what this book is about. Okay. So it has tons of potential great uses. You can have the same uses for fighting crime in the States. Right. Right. You see a murder, you trace it back, you catch the bad guy. But also, you know, there's all kinds of privacy questions sure. that come up with this. Yeah. So we're going to kind of dig in and talk about those kinds of things. Another book that I have here, this is another one of my favorite books in the world. This one's not a coincidence. I've had and loved this for years. This is called <laughs> Visual Display of Quantitative Information by Edward Tufte. Landmark book. I'll let you look at it afterwards. You, you won't want to give it back. Yeah. <laughs> but he just goes through and dissects um, with tons of examples from newspapers and publications what a bad visual display is, a bad chart, a bad graph. Okay. When are they lying? When are they poorly designed so that they're not communicating what they think they are? Right. Um, when are they wasting space? When do they look stupid and hacky? So there's aesthetics, there's statistics, there's all kinds of great stuff in here. And so I've been going through already. And whenever there's, you know, an odd five, 10, 15 minutes at the end of class, because, you know, this is the first time through. I don't, right. I can't plan everything perfect. <laughs> we just have tough time. We go through the tough next few time. pages in the I book love it. and look at the next few graphs and, and uh, I just want to instill into them very deeply yeah. um, the sense of craft and aesthetics for being able to create charts and graphs. Yeah, that's well, super beneficial because we use them all the time. I work on one today. One of the things that, you know, I want the students to be able to make good charts and graphs, and we're going to get to PowerPoints as well, mm -hmm. because when they get into their professional lives, they're going to need to make presentations to people that make decisions, or maybe right. they're going to make decisions and pass them on. But um, that is supported by having the best possible documentation. That's amazing how you're mixing really, I guess, the computer science, but it's fascinating to me how beauty comes into it and rhetoric, uh, visual rhetoric there with being able to c communicate well um, and to, to communicate in an ethical manner. Yeah, there's a saying in computer science, code is poetry. And programmers recognize among each other. So I, I work in a group of, I don't know, 100 software engineers, and we all have to review each other's code. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I have peers that I respect super highly because they write clean code that's well architected, it's readable, uh, and when it's readable, it's maintainable. Mm -hmm. So it's easier to find and fix bugs. And there's other colleagues that I have that are still like garage hackers. They're terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and so I want to instill that sense of beauty into the students, hopefully at this point mm -hmm. as well. And that's one of the good things about, um, so the curriculum that I'm jumping off from for the computer science principles, um, it's, it's coming out of, uh, is written by an uh, institute from Berkeley. It's called The Beauty and Joy of Computing. Hmm. It's a really awkward, weird name, but they've got beauty right there up front. The first <laughs> right. thing that they say is that one thing we want students to learn is that programs can have beauty, not just um, if they happen to create a beautiful picture mm -hmm. as the product, but the program itself. There's a sense of aesthetic mm -hmm. and elegance um, to the design of it. And so 
I'm trying to also, when we start up with our little toy programs, be, and I told them that I would be like this, really picky about, <laughs> oh, yeah, so that gets the job done. But it would be so much cleaner if you could just tweak this right here and, you know, move that over there. And mm -hmm. So that's the kind of thing that I'm heading for. That's great. Well, how have the classes been? So you've been in class now for a couple months. Yeah. Uh, how's it going? It is great. It's exhilarating. It's difficult um, as any time first first time teaching a new class is. Right. So, you know, I took a couple of weeks of vacation before school started to prepare as much as I could. But still, you know, every every class shows up and everything's out the window and I got to start over. So <laughs> it's it's a lot of it's a lot of work and preparation. But um, every class in here uh, makes it worth it. And I tell you what, 45 minutes on Zoom oh. is not much time. No. And 80 minutes in a classroom yeah. is a lot of time. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm I'm learning to manage that time and learning to pace myself. You know, I'm not getting uh, as far forward in the class and the curriculum as I had, had wanted, mm -hmm. but uh, I'm learning what to cut and yeah. uh, what to push off till later. Uh, one of the big things was, uh, you know, we just had an election. Right. And uh, I had a whole bunch of stuff building up from first principles that I wanted to get done by election day. Mm -hmm. And I had to squeeze some of that stuff out. But um, I think we got in some good stuff. We talked about uh, public key cryptography, RSA encryption, which is what every browser uses every time you give your credit card to Amazon. Mm -hmm. Um Right now, we're talking about Bitcoin. Um, we talked about uh, cryptographically secure online elections, which are not available yet, but they will be coming. Um, we were able to get a guest lecture that was fantastic uh, by Zara Paramal, who's the older sister of our good friend Theo. Oh, yeah. She uh, went to MIT and has been working in the field of cryptography and election security for many years already. She works wow. in Google in their threat detection group, the people that like look for Russian bots and shut them down. And so she gave us a great Zoom lecture about uh, election interference. It was fantastic. That's amazing. All right. This, this has been fascinating. And I love talking about this stuff. But uh, we're going to close things up here in a second. But before we do, I'd love to ask you, um, what, what, what are, what's the one thing you would want our students knowing uh, from your class as they leave into the real world? <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I think, I think, I think that I don't know if it's a thing for them to know, but I want them to have like the foundation of a fluency, um, so that they are not uh, in, scared or intimidated by computers or baffled by always oh, doing something mysterious. I could never understand that. I'm hoping that I can give them enough hooks into enough things that they can either see behind the curtains or know that they could see behind the curtains, mm -hmm. um, because. Going forward, everybody's going to be needing to use computers. Mm -hmm. Like, so Lucas, he was pretty resistant to me teaching him Python when he was in high school. <laughs> and um, he's in college now and he's studying uh, neuroscience, which is not computer science. But he's coming back saying, okay, I need, I need to automate some stuff. And he's learning Python in order to get it done. He's doing some uh, – working on some uh, research projects – uh, where these, he's got videos and has to capture stills from the videos and is going to present the stills to experimental subjects who have to make a decision based on what they see. And so he needs 
uh, software to you know, like kind of regularly go in and and pull frames out of the videos and resize them and and archive them all in directories so that he knows where to find them again. And so he's found that Python has been incredibly helpful in, in helping him to get this done a lot more efficiently. And in the same way, I would tell all the students, you know, I'm not gunning to make any of you a computer scientist or to push you into a major of computer science. Mm -hmm. But I know and expect that unless you're going to be the philosophiest of majors that all you do is write on legal pads, you're going to need <laughs> to be able to control and use computers. And I'm hoping that this will give you uh, a leg up. The other thing is uh, to follow the Cambridge way and to understand uh, the ethics of whatever's going on with technology that you interact with and not just assume that because it's new and bright and shiny, that it's good. Everything's mm -hmm. got a potential dark side, if not an actual dark side. And by what the way that we look at technology in this class, I want you to be able to take that experience forward and be able to evaluate other technologies as they keep growing and growing in all of our lives. Great. Thank you so much for uh, being with us here. I learned a lot. And uh, I appreciate all of the uh, resources that you brought. They're amazing. So thanks again. And this was a great time. Thank you for listening to an Examined Education. Be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, be sure to check out our website, schedule a private tour, or reach out to the Advancement Office. We'd love to see you. And we'd love to hear what you have to say about the podcast. So be sure to check us out on your favorite social media platform. Again, that's at an examined education. Leave us a comment, rate and review. And until next time, think well, love rightly, and live wisely.